0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello, and tablet editor at large, Liel Leibovitz.
1: So last night, Lisa was watching Inventing Anna on Netflix. So was
0: Rebecca. My daughter Rebecca was also watching that.
1: All I found to do is just talk in this deadened accent. this It's not exactly a German accent, it's like, German via Netflix, via Instagram <laughs> accent. I love it. It's great.
0: Uh, today on the show, we talk with newly appointed chair of this. This sounds uncool. It's actually unbelievably cool. I'm just going to come out and say that. If I told you that our first guest this week, our Jew of the Week, is newly appointed chair of the JFNA, the Jewish Federations of North America, Julie Platt, you might say, federations, like, yeah, I give, it. you know, good charity. Julie Platt is not only the mother of Dear Evan Hansen's Ben Platt, as well as four other extremely cool children. She was also one of my favorite interviews of the past uh, millennium or so. She was so interesting, so smart. Just, I can't tell you how excited I was to talk to Julie Platt and to hear about the work that they do. She was also head of the the Federation for Jewish Camping. She's like the chief Jewish summer camper in charge. It was just great. Our Gentile of the Week is Father Tom Soroka, who is an Eastern Orthodox priest. He's from Pittsburgh. He's also been participating in this terrific ongoing event that Tablet Magazine has been doing called The Tent. And he's going to talk to us about what being Orthodox means. In a Christian context, and also he's going to shed some light on the religious context of the war in Ukraine. So, great Jew of the week, great Gentile of the week, JOTW, GOTW. We are the POTW, the Podcast of the Week. It's a big Jew and a big Gentile. Yep. Everyone's bringing their their A game this week. So much A game, so so huge this week. Their olive game.
2: <laughs> Speaking of, they're bringing Natalie Portman's son Olive to the game.
0: Just by the way. Did she and Benjamin Thousandfoot have another child? And was that child Bet or Vet? Or do we know?
2: That is a good question. I'm going to go to Google for that.
0: They opened with Olive. That was their opening Hollywood naming.
2: Olive and Amalia.
0: <laughs> and love Olive. It. I love it. Olive's a boy, right? And Amalia's the girl?
2: Yes. I love that you call her husband Thousandfoot instead of Milipier.
0: Milipier. The guy's Thousandfoot. Benny Thousandfoot. Okay. So I have a Purim story. We just passed Purim. It was a great time. Our school opened big. I mean, there was, you know, we we basically had a, a huge event. Some people were masked. Some people weren't. People came as they were. We had like 60 kids. It was huge. It was so heartwarming. But I have a, a porn basket or porn bag, a, a shlachmanot story to, to tell you. Sid and the kids made Humantasha and David and I stuffed the little brown bags with um, our go-to sort of mixture. It's not very impressive in the grand scheme of things. It's like an orange, a couple Hershey's kisses. Two hamantashen and and a box of raisins. That's it. Not a big deal. Whatever. (laughs) That's lovely. It was lovely. It was fine. But we don't have like, you know, some people go all out, right? Anyway, you know, we do what we can. We do about 20 of them for people in our neighborhood. And then some years we get our act together to leave a couple hours to walk around the neighborhood and do it. This year, I drove them all. The kids bailed on me. It was me driving around in the Odyssey minivan, dropping off Shlachmanot. Okay. I get to the Levy's house on Alston Avenue,
1: but I'm sorry, I'm I'm imagining the funniest nine one one call ever. It's like you've got reports of a uh, you know forty something year old Caucasian male driving around the neighborhood, stopping every couple houses. Sir, what what are you doing? What's well, this thing called Schlachmanis,
0: Liel? You have no idea how close you just came to telling the story I'm about to tell. <laughs> okay,
2: he's racing through the streets. He's got to get them before Parham.
0: Listen to what happened. So. You know, little baggy number sixteen out of twenty or something. The (laughs) the, the Levy house. Arthur and Betty Levy, love them, amazing people. (laughs) I drop it off there, and as I'm walking up to their door, the mailman, not Jewish, is walking down from their door, and he sees. He turns around, he looks at me, he sees me drop it off, and he says, "Oh, you're the one." And I said, "What do you mean I'm the one?" He said. All day on my route, I've been seeing these little goodie bags on people's houses everywhere throughout the neighborhood. Some people have three of them. Some have four. Some have one. Sometimes you skip a house. Sometimes there's three houses in a row. And I've been wondering, who's doing this? You're the guy. (laughs) And I said, okay, actually, that's an amazing thought. I said, but I'm not the guy. I said, it's a Jewish holiday of Purim. I said, Can, do you have a moment? I'll tell you exactly what's going on. Because he seemed both odd, but also somewhat confused. And he said, I would love that. So sorry, do, you have, do you have a moment for Esther? Right. I said, we <laughs> have this holiday. All of a sudden, I'm a, I'm a You're chabad. you knocking right? on doors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, he stops for a second. He has his bag slung over his, his shoulder and he's walking back to his hostel vehicle. He said, yeah, I'd love to hear that. So I said, okay. Basically, there's this holiday. We read the book of Esther. He's like, oh yeah, scripture. Okay, I got it. I said, and then we're supposed to do three things. We're supposed to give charity. We're supposed to drink a lot and have fun and party. And we're supposed to give these little goodie bags of treats to our friends. And he said, that sounds amazing. I said, all right, well, that's so now. you." I said, but it's not just me. I was like, Jews all over the neighborhood have been doing it. I can't claim credit. He's like, oh, that makes so much more sense. (laughs) <laughs> he went about his route. But he thought I was the Purim fairy. And please tell me you gave you gave Mr. McFeely his own schlachmanis. So the saddest thing ever is I actually did not because I some years we have I bring some extras along in case you bump into someone. This year I didn't. And how great would it have been, right? If I'd been like, actually, sir, have have some schlachmanis from from the Oppenheimers. Okay. You got you gotta track him down on, yes, on yes. Pesach and
1: be like, look, couldn't get you in Purim, but here's a shimora matzah. Right. Not quite the same thing, right. but
2: Chag right. But I love this because it's like, you're like, it's kind of like Santa Claus. Right. There's all sorts of things you're pulling from here. Um, oh there's the cookies. So basically what he was seeing was like, what makes all of these houses different that have the right. magnets on them? That's <laughs> right. Those are the
0: Jewish houses. <laughs> now he knows. You know the houses with the little piece of jewelry up by the door about two thirds of the way up on the right? Those same houses. It's like, man, the Jews—the Jews have all the candy. I just love the idea. That he was walking through the neighborhood, thinking like, somebody is giving out a lot of presents today. And that's amazing. It was me. It it's was you. Me. It was me. Anyway, that's what's going on. Uh, that's the news from Westville. What's going on with you guys? So,
1: you know, I've—I've I've had a really magical week. Uh, as you mentioned in introduction, and as listeners know from previous episodes, Tablet Magazine launched this initiative, the Tent, in which we invited about twenty faith leaders from all traditions, Muslims, Hindus, Christians, and Jews, to basically sort of come and and hold space together and, and celebrate this month in which we mark the four big holidays of these four major American religions. And this week was the actual first week. And, you know, it's no secret. These are messed up times. So much anxiety, so much fear, so much, you know, misery going on. And you sit in on these conversations and you hear, for me at least, for the first time in a very long time, if not ever, like a real incredible open-hearted conversation between Americans of all faith, coming together to basically, you know, share with each other. What is it that we believe? What is it that we're anxious about? What, what is it that we don't what know and wish we did? In such an incredible kind of candid and, and heartwarming way, this has really made my week very special. And and I, I want to really plea with anyone out there who feels like they need And could use a little bit of uh, chizik, as we say, a little bit of spiritual strengthening, a little bit of light in their life, to join us by going to welcometothetent.com and signing up. It's $5, and we're giving it all back as soon as we're done. And you're going to hear a little bit of an insight like this one, in which the Reverend Sarah Condon, straight out of Texas, came and said something about prayer.
3: It's funny, but I often think the things that we type into Google are prayers um, without us realizing it. Because if you look up some of the most common questions in Google, it's really fascinating. Like, uh, why am I so sad? Is a question a lot of people type into Google. Or how can I fix my marriage? Or one thing I type in quite frequently is what are we having for dinner? Um, These are all like right prayers on some level. Isn't that
1: Um, just our form of spiritual plea? Like it's the kind of amazing insight that you hear in those conversations. And to do this together with, you know, Muslims and Christians and Hindus and Jews. Where do you get to do this in America? Where do you get to do this in, in a time where we all just yell at each other in social media? It's just really made this past week for me magical. And I hope as many of you could just join us on this thing.
2: You saying that thing about Google maybe just open my Google search history on my phone. Um, and I just want to give you a glimpse into the prayers I was offering on Saturday evening. Homemade baby food, how to make carrot baby food, how to use a steamer basket how to steam vegetables, Mm. (laughs) one ounce to tablespoon, can cats eat beans? Um, And those
1: were- (laughs) Which I'm I'm guessing was asked (laughs) retroactively after the cats had already eaten the beans.
2: And cats can eat beans, it's fine. You actually really like them.
0: Wait, so I don't know if this is the same as your Google search history, but my recently closed Google tabs. Oh, what are they? Who is behind Big Pickleball? (laughs) This New York City cantor is making modern Yiddish music that swings. Tree of Life survivors continue healing process through tattoo therapy and men's two-button corduroy velvet tan suit.
2: <laughs> this is like your soul. I mean- This is like your, what is it? Your porn name is like the street. It's like your last, it's two tab, <laughs> your your second most right. recent tab open and you're- It's like,
0: almost too true. It's uncomfortably <laughs> close to the truth. Two-button
2: Tree of Life <laughs> is what your podcast name is. <laughs>
1: News
0: of the Jews. Speaking of, of joy and prayers being offered up, let's go to news to the Jews. According to the World Happiness Report, which is a product of the United Nations, in fact, it's my favorite project of the United Nations, Israel is the ninth happiest country in the world. I'm going to read you numbers one through 19, and you'll see why in a second. Finland, winning as it always does. Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland. <laughs> Switzerland, by the way, my, my friend Andy's in Switzerland right now and he we were sort of texting about how Switzerland is such a happy place. And I was like, right, because they're all rich, they have a lot of chocolate and they have this practice of amoral neutrality where they never weigh in on the world's problems. So if you do that, you can just be really happy. Just sit back, don't worry about anything and eat chocolate. Easy to be happy. I, I discount them on principle. Number five, the Netherlands. Luxembourg, Sweden, Norway, Israel. New Zealand, Austria, Australia, Ireland, Germany, Canada, the U.S. coming in at 16, the U.K. at 17, Czechia at 18, and then at 19, Belgium. So from Finland to Belgium, 1 to 19, with Israel right there in the middle at number nine. Thoughts, comments? I have a Leo joke to make. This is the best U.N. list that Israel's on. <laughs>
2: like, The like, U.N. did so, said something nice about Israel. Like, This is really, really crazy. Uh. I love this list so much because you're right. It's like it's like Finland, Denmark. Like I see the like Scandinavian vibes, the clogs. By the way, no, Stephanie, I'm sorry. It's it's hella
1: anti-Semitic because you know the next step (laughs) is like, well, you know, there's war in Ukraine and suffering everywhere, but I guess the Jews are happy. (laughs)
0: That's okay. I just wonder, how does this play in New Zealand where they're so smug about how happy they are? It's like, it's beautiful. And Lord of the Rings was filmed here. And for a while we didn't have COVID. And aren't we perfect? It's like, you know who's happier? Israel, in the midst of a war zone, Israel's happier than you. Luxembourg, a country that nobody's even heard of, happier than you, New Zealand.
1: I just think this list came together when the Israelis are like, uh, what number, Germany? Like 14. Okay, you put us at nine. We're number nine. (laughs)
0: nine. Much happier than Germans. Also, much of of the word roll. You're very good at word roll.
2: Israelis are somehow the most chill and the most unchill people around. How is that possible? Like, they contain such multitudes. I really like it. They'll, like, chill on the beach all day long with those vibes, and then they'll, like, cut you in line getting ice cream after.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's, like, a time to chill and a time to unchill. Is in the book. You read the book, it's in there. Time to push and time to eat your <laughs>
0: <laughs> Speaking of unchill Jews, you know who's not chill is the uh, Shabbos observant, the Shomer Shabbos Jews in America who are really worried that the House is going to go along with the U.S. Senate in passing a bill to make daylight savings time permanent. This, of course, happened in the past week. You might have missed it. There was other news. Ukraine had bigger problems than what time zone they're in. Uh, but here in America, the Senate got together and unanimously, which is bullshit, by the way, unanimously passed a bipartisan bill on Tuesday to make daylight savings time permanent. This, of course, could present a problem in places like Detroit, where during daylight savings time, sunrise isn't until after 9 a.m., which makes yeah. it impossible if you want to get to a morning shachrit and Dovin before you get to work. It's not just Shabbos. It's every. Every day is uh,
1: is its own little conundrum. Can you explain this? So look, every day, Jews who pray have to do it three times a day. There's shachris in the morning, there's mincha in the afternoon, and then there's marev after three stars have appeared in the sky. Uh, those are the ones to which we are commanded, and they all have to happen in very specific times. If you're only allowed to pray the morning prayer from sunrise, and you have to do it in a minion in a quorum of 10 other people, And that doesn't happen until 9 a.m. And you, say, have a job that requires you to be in an office, but you could only do that, say, at around 1030 after you've done praying shachris. That's a problem for you.
2: So, okay, here's how they get this actually done you tell people that what this really means for them is that their fast on Yom Kippur is gonna go to like 8 p.m. Like that's how you mobilize the Jews is you tell them like the one day that most Jews have to do stuff. I'm gonna be right. like, wait, I'm inconvenienced by this. I'm on board. I'll sign Correct. off on whatever this is. I'm
0: very dubious about this though, because of course, when you shift things, you make something harder in the morning, but you can also, you know, but then at the other end of the day, you've just, if you're making shahrit harder, are you not also making you're making it easier to make a late mariv, right? You can just- No, you're not. Because because again,
1: first of all, most most communities sort of pray combine mincha and mariv. And if you have to then wait to do this much, much, much later in the day,
0: that means you're not getting
1: home. Because like
0: right now, I would mostly do this on my way home from work. Right, and if you're on winter time, if you're on standard time, like picture at the opposite extreme, you're in the winter, mm-hmm and it, it gets light early, great, that's good for Shachrit. If it gets great. dark early, that's still fine for Minchamari, which you can do after dark. You can do both of them after dark, in fact.
2: I will say that I do not understand daylight savings time. Every time the clock changes, it confuses me for a full day, at least. Okay. Um, I don't understand things. And I'm glad the Jews are taking control of the clocks, finally.
0: That's SB's POV on DST. Yes, yes, yes. I have a POV on DST, which is we were all, unsurprisingly, it's going to be this cranky, like, you know, leave things the way they are. The idea that there would be unanimity in the Senate to get rid of the old, the normal time and put everything on daylight savings time really did a hundred senators. Like there's got to be big chronometry, the watch industry, somebody's behind this big time. Some lobbyists, like how do you get a hundred senators, all of whom thought not only should we standardize it all, but we should standardize it on daylight savings time, not standard time. That is weird. That is weird. And there's shit going down. That like,
2: this is what everyone agrees on. Right, right. You know, I think it's so funny because like, remember how hard it, I mean, I sound like one of those old people now. Remember how hard it was like when all the things didn't change automatically for you? When like you had to change clocks to get to like SAT prep at the right time?
0: Yeah, we still have to on the oven clock. It's like it's now it's a microwave and and oven problem. And by the way,
1: I'm sorry, but it's kind of anti-Semitic that the big problem with change time is the ovens for the Jews. It's just not right.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of America and whether it's a good place to be Jewish, uh, according to a new poll from YouGov, which does very good polling because they get thousands and thousands of people to fill out these these surveys. Americans, when asked, what percentage of the country do you think is Jewish, think that about 30 percent of the United States (laughs) is Jewish. Now- they also think that twenty-seven percent of the country is Native American, also twenty-seven percent Muslim, and that twenty percent of the country has an actually I take it back. Their polls totally suck. They also think that twenty percent of the country are millionaires and that twenty-one percent of the country are transgender. So
2: So wait, what are the real life proportions of those?
0: Oh, it's like zero, one, 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 two percent Jewish. They think that thirty percent of the country lives in New York City. <laughs> So basically
1: <laughs> like Look man, I can't speak to any of this because my children are convinced that ninety nine percent of America is Jewish. In fact, they have a very hard time believing that people who they know to not be Jewish aren't Jewish <laughs> and it does not make any sense. And it's like, wait, what do you what do you mean? Our friends are. So you so what, what else is there? Like, it's basically just, do you mean they, like they're not religious? Like to me, they don't go to shul as often as we do. Like, what is it of which you speak? So yeah, I don't I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, we're, all, we're all Jews.
2: This is actually really funny because also the highest estimated proportion in this poll is that the people think that 36% of the population are members of a union. So to me, these are like all these boogeymen. For, I don't know who the idealized American is in this, um, but they, they think everyone is like rich, trans, Muslim, atheist, bisexual, Jewish, Native American. Like, according to all of these proportions, Whereas like so few people actually are all, I mean, it's really, really interesting because to me, it's like what threatens someone in some way, right? And then you sort of disproportionately assume that those scary things are more present than they are.
0: Hey, listeners in the J crew, is any one of you the American that all these people polled by YouGov think is the majority? Is, Is one of you actually a Native American Jewish Muslim atheistic, non-straight union member.
2: Oh, and a millionaire.
0: Yes, and a a millionaire. (laughs) Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or just call us and leave a message about what it's like to be you at 914-570-4869. Julie Platt is the newly appointed chair of the Jewish Federations of North America, only the second woman ever to hold that job. She's also the mother of a couple famous kids, including actor Ben Platt from Dear Evan Hansen and uh, his brother Jonah and a bunch more Kinderlach. Before we do this interview, which is awesome, I want to disclose something. I have given a few paid speeches that I had nothing to do with booking Julie Platt, and I don't think that it affected my interview of her. And I want to
1: disclose also that I have never seen Dear Evan Hansen, but that has nothing to do with the fact that I'm not on this interview. What about Pitch Perfect? Oh, I have seen that. It was
0: he was he was I am that. much more biased toward Julie Platt by my love of Pitch Perfect and Pitch Perfect 2 yeah, with her son right. than I am by the money I got paid several years ago for two speeches <laughs> for the Federation.
2: Welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to speak with you. You have been unanimously named the incoming chair of the Board of Trustees of the Jewish Federations of North America. And this is part of your like your, your celebration tour, an appearance on Unorthodox. <laughs> I'm really honored and excited. So, Julie, what does that title mean for someone who's never heard of the
3: Jewish Federations of North America? What it means is caretaking in every way we can, the North American Jewish community, providing value to the individual federations, looking at the 10,000 foot view of what are the areas of this community that need addressing, continuing the great work of my predecessor, Mark Wealth, and working with an extraordinary professional team. What does it mean right now? Uh, Helping Ukraine helping national security.
0: So basically it went from helping summer camp survive to helping Ukraine survive. You were always in sort of, how do, how do we save the the threatened mode? So I wrote a book about the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh and I learned a lot about the work that they, that the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh did. And I actually had to go study, I had to go study like what the federation system was. So I know a little bit about this, but can you give our listeners who don't know what it is, except that they sometimes give money to it or ask for money from it, What is this federation thing? Because a Methodist or a Mormon or a, a shaker wouldn't recognize it.
3: It is unusual to the Jewish community. We look out for one another. People have heard me say this before, and I'm quoting it from someone else. But when it rains on a Polish Jew, an American Jew puts up their umbrella. And that's honestly how we've been from the beginning of time, completely demonstrated in Ukraine right now. So we look out for each other in a very unusual way globally. In the North American Jewish community, the Federation are the conveners, the organizers, the caretakers of their local communities. They make sure that things that you would think of and things you would never think of get taken care of for the Jewish community. So obviously we want to make sure that any Holocaust survivor living in any community in the North American world is taken care of. We want to make sure that any young leader who is trying to find their way into the Jewish community is taken care of. But we want to also make sure that Jewish cemeteries in those communities that nobody cares about get taken care of. So
0: is it fair to say that the federations are sort of like local united ways for Jews in that they raise money and then distribute it out to a bunch of causes, but you can, there's sort of one-stop shopping if you want to give to the Jewish community. Is that, is that at all accurate?
3: Yes and no. It's very close.
0: No, but I want to hear all the ways it's wrong.
3: No, no, no. It's not wrong. I'm just going to put a nuance (laughs) on it, which is it's not check-in, check-out. It's not money in, money out. It's partnership. So in every case, and I have come from being the chair of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, that was my last position here in LA, we don't act as a receiving and then distributing organization. We actually sit with every one of our grantees. We have a partnership. We make sure that everybody understands what the money is going to be used for. There's metrics and understandings of money distributed in a very responsible way. In the olden days, the federations were were, um, described as black holes, which I think kept people from giving their money through a federation.
0: (laughs) I hope not by them. Certainly not. I hope that wasn't their sales pitch.
3: (laughs) From those observing. That is not the Jewish federation system of 2022. It is a responsible, understanding, mission aligned of funds in and funds out.
2: So, tell us a little bit about what's going on with Ukraine right now, what JFNA is doing.
3: I actually came moments ago sitting with the two representatives of the Los Angeles Federation that came back last night. And what they made me feel so good about, which I, of course, hoped and knew to be the case, is that the organizations that we partner with, um, primarily JDC, Joint Distribution Committee, and Jewish Agency for Israel, were there before. It's sort of like a fire department. We had fire departments all over Ukraine, Poland, Moldova, Romania, which are the receiving ends of the refugees fleeing Ukraine. And now there's a fire. And everybody sprung into action in a very organized way. I was just hearing about a yeshiva in Lublin that has converted entirely into a refugee gathering, not just for Jews, but for non-Jews. In one room of which has now become a kindergarten, you know, a play area. In another room has become with several consul generals who come, not necessarily from Israel, who come into that place to process. In another room, in another room are gathering places for food and for supplies. We know how to do this. We just didn't want to have to. And we have sprung into action in a way that we didn't have 80 years ago. And we have it now. That
0: is so important. And and yet, with all of that capacity, m- what I've heard is that the percentage of Jews who give to their federation is less than it used to be. Is that
3: right? That is correct. Our donors are not increasing at the rate. Our our Dollars are, but, but the pyramid is not where we would like it to be.
0: Why not? And what do you do? How do you fix that? How do you get the the unaffiliated non-federation giving 34 and a half year old who has other Who is
3: listening right now? Who's
0: listening right now to give?
3: What I hope will happen is that what I've just told you will get messaged to the community. There is no question of the value of the Federation system. It's about the messaging. It's about the understanding. It's frustrating for sure because I could not be more proud of the work we're doing. And somehow that messaging has not gone out as far and wide and deep as it needs to. We have incredible people working on that task 24 seven. You know, it's it's sad to me how gleeful I was when I saw a People Magazine Instagram post yesterday of the Israeli clowns that flew to the border to try to give some smiling moments to the children fleeing Ukraine, that somebody picked it up and told the story because those stories are incredible. It's just, we have a lot of work to do on the messaging of what we can accomplish as a federation system. All around the
0: world. So, remind me, you were until you were also head of the Foundation for Jewish Camping, is that right?
3: That's correct till the end of December. Wow,
0: which is which is such an important. I mean, as a proud Ramah dad, and I talk ad nauseum about this, so important. And you're a Rama parent. Did all five of your kids go to Rama? I'm a Rama
3: alum and a Rama uh-huh. parent of all five. Oh,
0: all five. So um, we want to get into which one, because that can get very contentious. Ramah New England, Ramah LA, Ramah Canada, but I won't go down that path. Rama
3: California, when, shout out. Okay, go the, ahead.
0: <laughs> at the beginning of COVID, I actually was in a fairly tense conversation with some people whom I respect enormously. Maybe Stephanie remembers this.
2: You an enormously contentious conversation, Mark?
0: <laughs> Shot, I know which one, right? How would you possibly know? But who were saying like, during COVID, Jewish institutions are going to fail. Day schools are going to close. Camps are going to close. It's only a question of which ones. And I remember thinking, and these were people with very good records of prognostication, and I have a terrible rec. I get everything wrong. But I just remember thinking like, I actually don't think that's going to happen. I actually think that almost no camps and schools are going to fail because of COVID. And I think I was right. You are so
3: right. How did we pull that off? So I'm going to answer you in a couple ways. I think we will see in the day school system, and I have seen this, there may be some mergers out of it that should have happened already. There may be too many in a space or too many synagogues in a space, three in like three blocks that maybe are talking to each other in a way they hadn't before. It won't be because of the pandemic, but perhaps moved along because of the pandemic. But in the area of Jewish camp, those of us who are the product of Jewish summer camp, and it is no secret about the secret sauce of Jewish continuity that comes from the Jewish camp experience. And it's in every study. It's everywhere. It's in every boardroom that I walk into. I am not afraid to say how many of you are the product of Jewish summer camp and the majority of people will raise their hands. So there is no secret about the enormous success of Jewish camping. There's no way we were gonna let them fail, nor were donors, foundations, and individual camps. And we did everything we could because there was an existential crisis when we had to close camp for a summer. That's a bleed of Millions and millions of dollars because that's our only source of revenue is kids in beds. We weren't going to let them fail and we propped them up. And we made sure that it didn't happen and it didn't happen. And then we opened last summer, some at more restricted camperships because of COVID restrictions. This summer, full on. But there is no way, based on a communal understanding, not just within the camping community, of the benefit of a Jewish camp experience for transformative Judaism that anybody was going to let the Jewish camping system fail.
2: So I hate to go from something serious to something a little bit less serious. There's also something else happening at Camp Ramah, and I think you are a qualified person to talk to me about this. There is a Ramah to Broadway pipeline. Why are there so (laughs) many Ramah alum on Broadway? Some of them are your children. Please tell us about this.
3: (laughs) Okay, maybe it's their training In the musicals at Camp Ramah, I'm not sure. My son has been heard, Ben has been heard singing Guys and Dolls on late night TV in Hebrew. Um, I don't know. It is certainly a freedom to enjoy your passion, which happens at Jewish summer camp. I I can't explain it. I just know it's celebrated by Romanics far and wide that Casey Levy and, and Ben have had this opportunity. And my son Jonah who was on Wicked on Broadway. They've been able to live out their wildest dreams on the stage at Ramah and on a Broadway stage near you.
2: So, you know, the thing that's so impressive is, you know, you have famous children, you have very musically talented children, Jonah, Henry, and Ben are your sons. You have other children as well, also talented in many other ways. Your sons do a, a ton of Jewish stuff. Like, I think you hold the key here to like all this Jewish continuity stuff. Like, there's a <laughs> there's a video of your kids seeing <laughs> <singing laughs> Olam. Olam. They just do so much Jewish stuff proudly at a time when we see the trends. Like there are not a lot of young people who are so, so, so excited to be famous for what they do, but also to be deeply publicly Jewish.
3: How do you do it? So I would say it is authentic to our family's life. That's what I would say. It's an organic progression that started by raising my children in a Jewish day school and sending them to camp. It was also intentional. My husband's a Hollywood parent. And we did not want that to be the only environment in which our children grew. So we were very, I did not grow up in a Jewish day school. That is to say, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, where there wasn't a Jewish day school, but I did not. But it was clear to me that if I was going to cocoon them from the Hollywood community that informs a lot of my husband's life, best do that in a Jewish day school environment and best do that at a Jewish summer camp. My kids, you know, would have liked to go maybe to some of those entertainment community camps during the summer. But that was a line in the sand for me. I knew what Jewish summer camp would do for their identity. I knew what a kosher home would do for their identity, which we have. I knew what Shabbat dinners would do for their identity. And this is just a natural progression for them to be joyfully Jewish. Whether my children will ultimately be observant, they'll be holiday observers. They already are in their homes, but they find Judaism joyful. And so it's very easy for them to do what you see. Uh, There's no arm twisting. It's, It's an extension of who they are. Using their talents to promote joyful Judaism.
0: Speaking of their talents, who's the singer in the family? You or your husband? This always comes from somewhere.
3: We both sing. I mean, that's just the truth. So if you're at a plat family simcha, you're likely to hear pretty much all of us singing. Uh, we don't let them into the family if they can't sing. So my the spouses of my children <laughs> can sing. We have a professional dancer too, which really was an add-on.
0: Okay. So I don't have, you know, um, I don't have five singing children, but I have five children and they're younger than yours. So you're a little, you're ahead of me in the game and yours seem to have turned out okay. <laughs> as far as we know, all is well. So a little advice, you know, how do you, how do you hold it together with, with a brood that everyone else thinks is bound to be pathologically dysfunctional?
3: Well, one of the tricks is that I lay in bed at night with my head on the pillow and say, which one didn't I worry about enough today? So that would be part of what you think is easy. That's not because I worry about them incessantly. We gather them a lot. That is a, a joy for me personally, but I think important for them as siblings and um, Judaism takes place in my house all the time, which I think has been very helpful. And it's the role modeling of a value that we place on our own siblings. My husband and I are incredibly close to our siblings and my children know that and have extended that to their own children. And then an awful lot of luck, an awful lot of luck. You know, I, I just am going to say here, and if if you... Look up my son, Henry. You will see this because he's quite public about it. Henry lived through a very serious mental health challenge during college. He used that experience to do good. He was very persuasive for the hiring of a chief wellness officer at the University of Pennsylvania when he felt we were falling short. I I have the honor of being a trustee at Penn. And he was very vocal about where we were falling short in the mental health space and used what was a terribly painful time for our family to do good with his mental health. So I think my children have learned, by example, from me, I hope, and from my parents and my my husband's parents to use difficulties in our lives to do good. And Henry definitely did that. So we're not without challenges. It's It's not, you know, my children often call me Pollyanna because I wish for good for everyone. It's not always so.
0: When you and Mark met or first started talking about having a family, did, did you want five children? Oh
3: my gosh, this is a great story. Okay. I come from four, my husband comes from three. We settled on four. We very much wanted to grow a big Jewish family. I was done after Ben's birth. And I don't know if you are familiar with Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, but he is one of the most important mm-hmm. teachers in my life. And Mark and I were both in the Wexner program. And at one of our last gatherings, Yitz spoke to us as a send-off of what are you going to do in your life for the Jewish people? And after he was done, his last comment was, if you have the inclination and the resources, actually the best thing you can do for the Jewish people is to have another child. And three families in that gathering, were we were all done. I was already 35. I thought, you know, I'm the right age to be finished having children. We all went home and had another child. And um, Henry was born when I was 41, my last child, and so did two other families. And many years later, Yitz came back for a Wexner reunion, and we all brought our Wexner babies for him to meet of children who were in this world because of the enormous impact of his words. Wow! We call them Yitz babies. I love that. Yitz babies. You know, really pl- I think the word joyful is the right
2: one. It's, you've said that a lot. I think that there's something, there's something joyful about talking to you. To you, there's something joyful, it seems like that you're bringing to the work that you do and the fact that it, you know, encompasses all parts of your life. I mean, it's, it's so your passion is so obvious and it's honestly such a delight to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, Julie Platt, this isn't sponsored. We're just interviewing you. I do want to know, like, what's one way that a young person can connect with JFNA? Just a little
3: bit of learning. Let us talk to you and teach you because I'm so proud of the work we're doing. There's an entry point for everybody. In what they care about. Um, Understand that we are an organization that welcomes, nurtures, and grows young leaders. We welcome and grow change makers. We are hopeful that we will grow and teach and learn the generations after us. We have a very strong presence in DEI, which I think people do not understand. And honestly, don't prejudge, take the time to learn and expose yourself to the enormously gratifying and important work that we're doing that I am so proud of.
2: Amazing. The website is jewishfederations.org. Julie Platt, when are we coming over for Shabbat? Because I want some oh of this God. joy.
3: My door is open. <laughs> my door is open. My Friday night table is waiting for you.
2: Thank you so much for being a guest on Unorthodox and congratulations on the new position. Thank you so
0: much. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Julie. You.
1: You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention. Shine a light, come on, pick up your pen and
0: write. To the mailbox. This is a great one. Hi, Mark, Leel, and Stephanie. My 14 year old daughter overheard me listening to you talk about Jerusalem crushing Wordle. And she wanted me to let you know that she attributes our acing that app to her high school in the Judean Hills. She attends Oriya High School in Alon Shvut and claims that every morning, the hallways ring with girls and teachers frantically trying to solve the day's wordle before classes begin. Go figure. Sincerely, Lisa Zlotnik, Nev Daniel. See? I love that. And it's Nev
1: Daniel, not Nev Daniel. It's not like the actress from the Scream franchise. <laughs>
0: it's not Nev Campbell's- <laughs> Brother. Moshav. <laughs> In the Judean Hills, guys, this is this is amazing, and by the way,
1: completely proves my point that the wordel is uh, not just Anglo's; it's it's all of Israel. All of Israel are wordel to each other. But this week we got a an amazing note that just made me so happy. Here it is: Hi Mark, Leo, and Stephanie, my mum. You already know this is a fancy British listener. My mom listens to your podcast and told me I should email you about my idea for a Jewish Marvel superhero called Shim Shabang. <laughs> his superpowers are discussed by Hillel and Shammai in great detail. One of his superpowers that both the house of Shammai and Hillel, the two, to those of you not up to speed on their Talmud, the two competing rabbinic approaches to interpreting Jewish law, uh, that both the houses of Shammai and Hillel can agree on is that he can accurately circumcise an eight day old baby from 10 meters away. What other superpowers do you think he could have? Kind regards, Benji Shama, age 15, London, England. The kids are all right, man. This just made me so happy. (laughs) Just Marvel superhero circumcision joke and Hilal and
0: Shamai in one email. This is all I need.
2: That is niche. That is an email to you. I love that.
0: We could totally stop there but we won't. Stephanie, would you read the letter from Mindy Kaufman up in Canada?
2: Yes, here it is. I spent most of my youth in Saskatoon, also a Canadian prairie town. The highlight of every boy's bar mitzvah came on the Sunday morning after the bar mitzvah when they could go curling. All the Jewish men in Saskatoon curled on Sunday mornings. That first Sunday morning curling was when you really became a man. I love this so much. You read from the Torah, and then you, you get to the curling rink, and that's when it's official.
1: You curl your side locks, and you curl on the ice.
2: It's like instead of getting the mezuzah from the synagogue president, they give you your curling stick. Your broom. I should know what that's called. Your
0: broom. Your broom. Or, or your stone. Yeah. Well, I'm now here as our official curler to tell yes, you. Yes, yes. It's your broom.
1: But Listen, guys, the best is yet to come because our... Discussion of what do you call people who are half Jewish, half something else is really, I think, soaring to whole new heights this week. Have a listen. Hi, Stephanie, Mark, Liel, and crew. I've been loving the ongoing conversation around the ethnic group combos, i.e. pizza bagels for Italians, the various Greek Jewish terms, etc. With Purim and St. Patrick's Day falling on the same day this year, any ideas for us Irish Jews? My mom is Ashkenazi Jewish and my dad is Irish Catholic maya potato Kanish, shepherd's chai <laughs> hashemrock which is the most amazing thing i've heard these are all Hashem pretty rock. terrible no they're amazing so i'd love to see what the j crew comes up with thanks madison madison hashemrock is is amazing just amazing.
2: By the way, my favorite thing about all of these is that they're all foods.
4: Like, like I don't
2: know <laughs> I think it was because pizza bagel pushed us in that direction. But, like, these don't need to be foods. But the fact that they are is the funniest and most Jewish part about all of them. Potato knish is hilarious because it's, like, so, so, so subtle. I like shepherd's high though. I really like that. And here is one more on the, on the mashup names. Hi, Unorthodox team. My son is half Mohawk and half Jewish, like Robbie Robertson. Would he be an Indigijew? That's from Laurie, Canada. Yes, I love that.
0: And finally, our listener, Giovanna, pointed us to the TikTok of one Lucas Arnold, who apparently has amassed a huge following uh, with his ideas for ethnic nickname mashups. Let's go straight to his TikTok, Lucas with a K. why
3: is it that when someone is
0: half jewish and half italian they're affectionately called a pizza bagel when instead they could be called a mozzarella
4: stick goodbye someone who's half jewish and half puerto rican you say i'm gonna go with an empanagila hava (laughs) nagila that's the most garbage pun i've ever been
1: Father Thomas Soroka is an Eastern Orthodox priest at St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in Pittsburgh. He's also one of the few proud and amazing faith leaders in The Tent, our month-long effort to give you access to the sort of faith leaders that you really want to be talking to, really hope you will join us at welcometothetent.com. Here is our interview with Father Thomas Soroka.
2: Father Tom Sirocco, welcome to Unorthodox. Congratulations on being our Gentile of the
4: Week. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here and to speak with you and to get to know everybody, both on the podcast and on the, the tablet website. It, this has been a lot of fun and a great honor.
2: So, we first roped you into our tablet orbit with our project, The Tent, and you actually just earlier today gave a talk, right? For, for that did. program. What was it?
4: It was a talk on prayer, and so I titled it Prayer and Worship in a Heavenly Earth. And I talked about an Orthodox perspective of prayer and worship and how our understanding of both is really has to do with how we are participating in the worship that's going on in heaven uh, all the time. And so it was fun to be able to help me unpack all of that because Sometimes I don't have the opportunity to present that in that way. Like, how do we get all of this information into about a 45-minute presentation? So it was really, it was a good exercise for me. And I hope that people got something out of it.
2: So you're an Orthodox priest. Orthodox means something to us Jews. I think it means something a little bit different to you. So will you tell us a little bit about what it means to be an Orthodox priest and a little bit more about Eastern Orthodoxy?
4: That's a good question. I really actually think it it means something similar. Oh. In other words, orthodox Christianity as far as self-identifying is uh, as we would understand it, the original, the uh, true orthodox meaning, right from the Greek term orthodoxa, right glory. It is the original or the correct glory of God, the correct worship, the correct way to worship, the correct doctrine. And so, Orthodox Christians, generally speaking, are very traditional uh, in the way that we exercise and practice our faith. We've been doing that for 2,000 years, so in a certain way, it is unchanging, and we guard that very carefully. We guard those traditions very carefully we have the writings of the fathers what we call the fathers of the church and so we follow those very very carefully we follow the doctrines the practices of our faith the fasting right now we are in a fasting period of what's called great lent one of four fasting periods we actually fast about half of the year and so there's a lot of there's a lot uh, a rich history in orthodox christianity and that's really the religion of the Holy Land, the Middle East, Greece, Russia, Serbia, Syria, Albania, that is the, the predominant Christian faith. And then here in North America, there are about one million Orthodox Christians.
2: You know, <laughs> when you're describing what Orthodox means, I'm thinking, well, darn it, what does unorthodox mean uh, for us on this <laughs> show? We are not the true meaning, I guess.
4: Well, uh, you know, I, I think that this is the way in which, if if you think of Orthodox Judaism, that actually is my question uh, that has to do with, you know, how do Orthodox Jews see non-Orthodox Jews? It probably is very similar in the way which Orthodox Christians see non-Orthodox Christians. We, we certainly recognize them to be Christian, but it, it may not be that we see non-Orthodox Christianity as the fullness of that expression of Christianity, just the way that Orthodox Judaism is really a kind of full expression I, I, I shouldn't say that because I don't want to speak for, for Judaism, but as I, I told you in our, our brief encounter, I have a tremendous respect for Orthodox Judaism because I see it as all-encompassing in the life of a Jew. And so, Orthodox Christianity should be that also. It should be something where you are guided in your daily life by your Orthodox Christianity And so this orthodoxy, which is both old and yet very alive, is something that has a very deep meaning, a deep understanding, and a way in which to live our lives by.
2: By the way, you are such a big Gentile that you started with your Gentile that we question. Like, usually we get to that at the end, but I love it. I love it. And, what? you know, you're you're totally onto something because, yeah, of course, if you believe that your expression of the faith, to, to borrow a term, is the fullest, then, then someone who is Jewish but not practicing in the way you do is is... Probably not doing it right in your mind. I mean, I think a lot of Orthodox Jews would say they don't judge. You know, we did a whole episode right. where, where we went uh with the Chabad Lubavitch emissaries around New York City and asked people if they were Jewish. And I said to them, I said, When you see me, you must think that I'm not, I'm not right. I'm not one. And he says, No, 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 we accept, we accept you, we accept everyone. And so I think that there's a lot of religious Jews would say, Yes, we, you know, we understand everyone's different, but I do kind of feel like there probably is a level of judgment. I mean, the interesting thing that we found doing this show is there are a lot of people who identify as secular Jews who are quite, quite proud of their Judaism or people for whom their Jewishness is really deeply tied to their identity, though they would not at all call themselves Orthodox and likely would not do things the way the Orthodox do. And so the thing that I'm so interested in, you know, this idea of like cultural Judaism being so important to me, I'm always asking people like, is there cultural Christianity? Do you? judge the non-Orthodox Christians? Of
4: course we we don't. Of course we don't. I think that your mileage may vary. So you may have people online, like right now we have this really strange thing going on where we have a lot of converts coming into the faith. Interesting. A, lot of, a, a tremendous number of converts coming into Orthodox Christianity, mostly from evangelicalism, but you know also from from all areas and from you know non believers that want to experience something that is rooted in history that is rooted in tradition and we don't want to judge because we don't want to judge their past so we don't want to look at someone and say oh your past was completely worthless and now you have everything what we want to say is now you are you're coming into a greater experience of God and a greater experience of the truth. However, just like you're saying like there are cultural Jews, there are people that, you know, maybe don't identify as religious Jews but they identify as Jewish and so that Judaism is a part of their life whether they know it or not. Orthodox Christians are the same. So for instance, if you go to these areas like Russia or Greece or Syria or or Ukraine or wherever, everybody is Orthodox when it comes to Pascha, when it comes to what Western Christians call Easter, but we call Pascha. It's the word Passover. And so um, when that time for Pascha comes, Everybody gets their Easter baskets ready and they take them to church and they get them blessed and so forth. In a way, that's a way of sanctifying the culture, a way of bringing that religion into your daily life so that even the person that is maybe feeling very distant from God or distant from the church, they're getting some experience of that. And eventually, hopefully, it leads them back to a relationship with God. relationship with the church because really, ultimately, that's the meaning of your life. So, we'll take anybody that wants to have a a, a small experience of God, if they come to church once or twice a year, what we call Christmas and Easter Christians, right? the the Easter lilies that that just come to adorn the church once a year. (laughs) That's okay, but we want them to have that as a stepping stone into something much deeper and much greater.
2: That's funny because sort of we shorthand this idea of like the high holiday Jews, the people who just like go to synagogue on the high holidays. But it is funny because Passover functions in that way for a lot of Jews as well. I mean, I think the some recent survey said like 70% of all Jews do something for Passover and it doesn't necessarily have, you know, you don't have to go to synagogue because it's a home-based holiday. And so it is interesting to to me the way these these holidays allow for those access points because that is so important, right? That's sort of what we're all doing here.
4: There is that intersection between culture and religion, which I so respect about Judaism. For instance, Passover, you have the Passover meal, right? When you have that particular intersection that comes into the home, the Sabbath. So you have a Sabbath ritual that you go through in lighting the candles, in having a Sabbath meal, in having a a day of rest— I think that informs our life and it informs our culture. And honestly, I think that's what secularists maybe are missing. So, our our western culture goes through these ebbs and flows where they say yeah you know religion is the cause of all problems in the world and we need to abandon it and then after they abandon it they say well we really need some meaning in our life so maybe religion is is what we need and they go back and forth you even have atheists now very famous atheists who've written books who are recognizing the importance of religion in the life uh, and, and the history of the human race and saying, maybe we misjudged it and it's really not all about people killing one another and fighting one another over quote-unquote meaningless doctrine, but it's about people having a meaning to their life and realizing that there is a greater purpose, there is a quote, higher power. I don't mean to to minimalize the existence of God but that's how they would see it and it can become a a way in which culture itself will allow us to once again experience God in our life
2: so you've mentioned a few countries um, so far you've mentioned Russia you've mentioned Ukraine I have to ask you given everything that's going on given the the Russian invasion of Ukraine given the devastation we've seen it Is that something that you're dealing with in your faith community there in Pittsburgh?
4: It is. Uh, It's it's very unfortunate. And I, I want to say at the outset, now, my particular church is under the jurisdiction of what's called the Orthodox Church in America. So in that sense, we are completely American. We don't have governance from outside of the country. Our bishops are American and so forth. However, the history of my particular church is Russian. It was established by Russian immigrants uh, during the Bolshevik Revolution or or the years just before that in 1914. However, that church was made up of many people and myself, uh, my family's history is both from Russia and Ukraine, Belarus, that particular area, Poland. Those borders changed so much You know, when when people say, what country are you from? Or my grandfather, when he came to this country, he wrote that he was Russian. But today, that area where he was from is actually Poland, where there were a lot of Jewish people there too, in Semyotici. So, the idea that my parish was Russian, but had many Ukrainians in it, and then there's a block away, uh, there is a Ukrainian church. Uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And then a block away from that, there is a Ukrainian Catholic Church and a Byzantine Catholic Church. The area that I live in was filled at one time with Slavic people, Uh, Slovaks, Russians, Ukrainians, um, Carpatho-Russians, or what they call Rusyns. And these people are all traditionally Orthodox. It has maybe not caused rifts in our church as much as a great sadness. I have people in my parish that are, of course, converts, as I said, but I also have people that came from Russia. Uh, I have uh, people whose family live in these areas that are are being uh, bombed right now. Odessa, I have a woman in my parish, her family lives in Odessa. I have people in my parish who lived in Belgorod, which is right on the border of uh, southern Russia and northern Ukraine. I was there two years ago. We do not want to see this fratricidal war go on between these two predominantly Orthodox countries, especially because... Russia came out of 70 years of communism, and they had the opportunity for freedom, to live in freedom. Millions of Orthodox Christians were killed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed because of their faith. And in the late 1980s and early 1990s, when they came out of the Soviet system and out of communism, they had an opportunity for freedom. And now to be falling back into a kind of authoritarian rule where there are these restrictions and you can't say things and you can't speak against the war, this is just a tragedy of immense proportions. Ultimately, what we want there is peace.
2: So, you know, it just reminds me of, you know, the human toll of this, right? Like these, these, these aren't forces operating a world away. There are people with families. And so I'm, I'm curious, that kind of pastoral work must be so difficult for you to do right now because it's not theoretical. It's 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 very, very, very real. And people are always turning to faith in moments like this.
4: I will tell you they have been coming to me. One woman was in tears because... She was having personal issues. She was having issues with her uh, family. And then she's worried about family in Ukraine. And so, you know, what do you say to a person to help them other than how can we be a support to you? Let's pray together. And also for me, I have to be very careful about what I say in church. I have to thread the needle very, very carefully to not offend anyone's political sensibilities or religious sensibilities. And it, and it's fine. I will just say we want peace. We want the fighting to end. We want people to live in security. And to to help people through this particular difficult time, I simply offer them an ear, but not always an answer, because there may not be a good answer for this.
2: Father Tom Sraga, I love listening to you talk and this is not the only place you talk. Not not just on our podcast and in your, in your church. You have a radio show, you have a podcast. Tell us how we can get more of you.
4: So, a lot of my podcasts are on a website called Ancient Faith Radio, so it's ancientfaith.com where they have hundreds of podcasts. We have about a I would say 7 or 8 live shows now, and so I have a live show every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time called Ancient Faith Today Live. And we talk about issues like news issues and religious issues, how to relate to other people. We talk about racial issues, a little bit more sort of serious topics, political topics. There are other shows on there that maybe are a little bit more light in the way that they uh, discuss things. I have a podcast of daily scripture readings, which has been going on for about 12 or 13 years now. I have a podcast of my sermons, also called Sermons at St. Nicholas. So it's been a really wonderful opportunity to share the Orthodox Christian faith with people and to uh, get our own people educated and involved too.
2: I love that. Father Tom Storga, thank you for coming on Unorthodox. Thank you for lending some orthodoxy to our our show (laughs) over here. And I'm wishing you, you know, uh, a reflective Lenten Lenten period. Did I say that right?
4: Yes, you did. And I appreciate that very much. And I believe the day that we're recording this, this is uh, Purim today. And uh, I wish everyone that that celebrated it a a blessed feast and... uh, You know, may we all live in peace and harmony with one another and respect one another. And please pray for the people of Ukraine that everyone would live in peace and harmony.
2: Amen. Thank you so much, Father.
4: Thank you.
1: Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have any mazel tops? I have two mazel tovs. First of all, and this is a total unpaid endorsement. Sometimes you just come across things that are just so beautiful and really kind of capture Jewish spirit in a way that just makes you glad that you own them. So I found one of these. It's a challah board uh, made out of this beautiful piece of handcrafted wood that I saw at a friend's house and just loved it so much that I went out and bought one for myself. And they have all kinds of really nice wooden Judaica things on their website. I don't know these people at all. I just love that they're doing beautiful wooden Judaica. So if you're into that, check out Winthrow.com. They're just beautiful things. But my main mazel of this week goes to my wife, Lisa Ann Sandel, who just, we record this on a Monday just yesterday, bested the New York City half marathon in record time, and I am so so proud of her, and uh, can't wait to uh,
0: stand beside her in the starting line of the marathon in November. You're running the marathon together? Oh yeah, that's um, that's love, Stephanie mazeltov
2: I hear your wooden holoboard shout out, and I gotta say that listener Ellen Konzager made the most beautiful personalized holoboard out of a beautiful piece of wood for Edith when she was born. It's amazing, and it's great because Edith actually just turned eight months yesterday. And so my mazel tov I think is to her because she is freaking awesome and so cool. And she babbles all the time, and so she's ready for her own podcast. So um, maybe I'll, I'll record some of that and share it with our listeners. Awesome.
0: And I just got a shout out to my friends, Gary Kahalnik and Karen Garfield. Keep listening, keeping part of the J Crew. And finally, our audience development superstar, Tanya Singer wants to share a Mazel tov to Rachel Mann, who's the director of education at Sherry Tikva in Scarsdale. She runs the Rosh Chodesh group, Tanya's in, and you know, is just killing it. So a Mazel Tov to her as well. If you have Mazel Tov, shout-outs, harsh criticism, constructive criticism, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnik and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Producer is Robert Scaramucci. Our associate producer, Quinn Waller. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Follow us at any of those places. Go buy some of our swag at fit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode artist by Esther Wordiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. The mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. The executive editor of Tablet Online at TabletMag.com is Wayne Hoffman. And our editor in chief is Alana Newhouse. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Malcolm Cohen at Temple Sinai in Las Vegas, where actually there are slot machines in, in the foyer. You walk in right before Shabbos, like Friday afternoon, you do some slots then you go to Kabbalah Shabbat. I don't know if that's true. But to be fair, if you do win, you get like a Siddur, not cash, which that's is right. good. Worth more. And you have to put 10% of it in the push Pushka. Correct. We come to you from the newly IRL offices of Tablet Studios where we're dusting off our desks and getting back in the game. Shalom, friends.
1: None of this is true, guys. My name is Sheldon. I was... Born in Boise. (laughs) I'm not even Jewish. I'm sorry. I just wanted you to like me. You're a
0: Mormon from from Idaho who came to the big city and your way into the Jewish media world. (laughs) Right. I'm a Mormon from Idaho. And I thought, you know, it's glamorous
1: pretending to be a Jew. (laughs) Everyone, what an easy life. Just yachts and Hampton mansions all the way down.